Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast with a word about our sponsor, Huber Engineered Woods. There are really three reasons why I think Huber Engineered Woods stands out, and it's a big part of why they're a sponsor of our Unbuild It podcast. First, they develop systems of products. The products are compatible and integrated. Makes our jobs a lot more easy in the field and when specifying. Second is superior tech support. There are really good website resources that they have developed for the application of their products, but they also have an outstanding uh, 800 number tech team that really knows their stuff. And the last is a really active technical research and development team with whom I've done a lot of work over the years and I have a lot of faith in the information I get from them when I have questions about product performance. So that's it. That's our high performance sponsor. Now onto the podcast. Welcome to the Unbuild It podcast. I'm Jake Bruton, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Basic. Hello. He's super excited for some reason. We are not in our normal studio. We are recording remotely from an undisclosed location. So if there is noise in the background, that is just a bag full of kittens trying to get out of a closet. And we are joined uh, today by Ben Bogey. Say hello, Ben. Hello, Ben. And this is one of our people you should know. Hey, you should be paying attention. You should think about talking to this person if you run into them in public. Could potentially be people you shouldn't know. It could be. But uh, we'll have to decide we'll at the end of Depends on what talk. your lawyer thinks, yeah. Yeah, we'll let, uh, we'll let the listener be the, uh, the one making the decision on that. And uh, the format for this sort of conversation is, Ben, it's your turn to talk. <laughs> This is Ouch. Nice little on the spot. Give us the what do you do now and how did you get here? Okay. What what I do now is uh, a couple of things. I'm a project manager. That's my day to day or what it says on my business card. Um, In the construction field. Correctly. Uh, high end, high performance residential. So we do nothing but high performance residential. Much of that tends to be high end. Um, in Western Connecticut and Eastern New York State, Hudson Valley. Um, That's just a different way of saying we're real expensive, high-performance yeah. builders. Yes. We do yeah, fancy yeah. people stuff. We may fancy. be slow, but at least we're expensive. Yeah. Um, Make up for it. So, yeah, I, that's, I build houses for people. Um, I'm second or third generation high-performance builder, depending on how you want to look at that. And uh, what that means is is. Back in the late 70s, my grandfather was very science-minded and became aware of the work that was going on in Canada with high-performance building after the oil embargoes um, and took a liking to it. And my father was running a construction company, and they started building super-insulated high-performance houses in the early 80s. Um, so I've been brought up, tried to avoid being a carpenter, but I would get a paycheck for putting a tool bag on. And... Uh, I always had building science drilled into me from a young age. So thermal bridging, air sealing, that kind so of stuff. So you, you bring up, um, you know, the oil embargo and people had panic attacks and that begat, you know, high performance building and Chrysler making the K car mm -hmm. and the import of Toyotas and all these things. And I think about that and I go, yeah, and we have about the same amount of interest in high-performance building as we did back then, it feels like. No, definitely not. Um, so, And I can say that because I lived through it. So that was very much the, the pioneer days. 
um, of high performance building. And it didn't catch back then because, well, energy costs went way down. So nobody wanted to pay attention to it anymore. Um, but I have watched throughout my career because I've been brought up around it to see how it's growing and how I think we're actually kind of at a point of market adoption or like we're tipping the um, the top of the the roller coaster right now and people are starting to become aware of it if you couldn't tell that was what i was hoping you'd say <laughs> i walked right into that i'm a little slow well and today, the code so. is the code is catching up mm-hmm. i mean the code is not too terribly far off of passive house at this point like it's closer than it's ever been and more code is adopted nationally than it ever has been before and we have you know uh Passive houses sitting in on the ASHRAE councils now to drive further code development, stuff like that that's coming. You know, 15 years ago when we were putting two inches of poly ISO on the exterior of a building, people thought we were crazy. You guys at the local lumberyard, you're doing what? But now this is part of the code, you know, in certain, you know, climate zone five and above. We've got continuous insulation required now. So this stuff is coming and we're going to get dragged along kicking and screaming whether we like it or not. I Do you think that? the rest of the industry goes without kicking and screaming. Oh no, they're going to kick and scream. Okay. And we see that we see it because when we look at code adoptions state by state, uh, many of them will take the IECC energy portion right out of the code. Yeah. And they'll just, or modify it so that you can still do two by four walls. If you put in a 95% efficient furnace, all sorts of stupid, what our market has done. Or then like, uh, you know, I spent a number of years working in Maine. So they they took out all the blower door testing requirements when that started coming in 2015 cycle, I think it was, and they've avoided that. And now they're going to adopt it. So we've lost this iterative series of years where guys could have started to learn how to do institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And now they're going to be forced and they're going to get caught flat footed. Um, having to now comply so well let's you're on the top we're on the topic of blower doors when was the first time that you had to blow a door a house that you were working on uh or have you have i well i own i I have uh, i own a blower door uh setup retrotech setup and have for uh about seven or eight years so i think that was the first time that i i really did it is when i uh I had a phase where I thought I was going to get out of uh, wearing a tool belt and I was going to become an energy auditor. And I actually went to Atlanta to work, took my BPI uh, or my ResNet training with Allison Bales. Uh, and then I realized that there was no money in doing energy auditing because the states gutted all the incentives out of it at that time. Um, but yeah, I've been blower door testing all of our projects and doing diagnostic blower door testing for you know, seven, eight years, something like that. It's one of the the best learning tools I've had in my career, yeah, a blower door combined with an infrared camera. Uh, you start to understand how buildings work in a, you know, everything that you've screwed way. up ever. Oh, absolutely. And every person that has ever screwed up working on your house. Oh yeah. Dan Colbert, who I used to work for has a saying, he says, if you ever want to guarantee you'll never sleep well again is learn building science because you're going to yeah. wake up in the middle of the night and you're going to remember all those things that you did on that project and second guess yourself and wait for the lawyers to call i think i bought my blower door in 2015 or 2016 so close to the About same time that time uh and i immediately went and did a blower door test at a house that we had built for my parents and then did a blower door test at the house that i lived in that was a 60s ranch and then like three weeks later the city was running a program where we get rebates for upgrading things and one of the metrics is air sealing and uh the guy came to do the blower door test and i hadn't met him before and I said, it's about a seven and a half. 
And he was like, where'd you pull that number out of your butt? <laughs> and I said, well, we'll see what it is. And then he set up the door, ran the test. It was like 7.6. And he was staring at me and he was like, do you own a blower door? Because <laughs> <You've laughs> I'm fairly before, certain I'm you? the only yeah. person in town that owns a blower door. And I've never had anybody guess anything. And I was like, yeah, I own my own blower door. And it's been less than two weeks since I did a blower since door test. Since I tested test. the house. Yeah, yeah so not much the same temperature, yeah, no yeah, wind. Yeah. It was a good day to blower door test. What about you, Steve? When I don't know a blower door. When was the first time that you had to blower door First test blower door projects. test was probably 1990. No, one of your projects. One of my projects. Um, when would that have been? To clarify, Steve was about to talk about BSC experience yeah, and blower door 96. testing. Um, one of my projects was probably like 2004 or something like that. 2005. Passive house? Um, no, we just, the builder in the Southwest that, I did all their design work for a production home builder, but he blew did a blower door test on every house he built. That's impressive. And that's at that like time. you know we had a years where six hundred homes in one year, and he had a guy that and they commissioned gave, every and they gave a, a uh, energy guarantee on every house they built too. Did they bill it as an energy guarantee, or did they call? Didn't they call it a comfort guarantee or something? Or, like yeah, that? they might have had a fancy like your bill won't be over this amount. It, if yeah, you as long as you house. operate under these conditions, then your bill will not exceed this. How many comfort guarantees would you be willing to give on your houses? Oh, I'd be happy to give a comfort guarantee. That's why we get hired. Yeah, there we go. I feel like most builders would have a panic attack and be like, I have to guarantee what? Mm-hmm. You People are going to be comfortable. And it's like, I think, and I don't think that I understood it until I got to move into one that I built because we live in our it's house. A, that, yeah, it's a whole different And experience. now it's like, oh, this is not terribly difficult. The... The metrics are easy to understand, and once you get to a certain level of air sealing and insulation and quality windows, and it's like, oh, this is really not complicated the way I, that people think it is. I'd be more comfortable giving a comfort guarantee than I would to give an energy guarantee because so much of the occupant behavior is going to, like you're saying, yeah. if you operate within a certain set of parameters, but so much of the occupant Well, 2004, that was, I mean, people barely plugged things in back yeah. then. The benefit they had is they had a guy that was... He did all the design, HVAC design, um, ventilation design, um, and he was the one that commissioned the project. So he knew the ins and outs. He knew where their buildings, if it was going to fail, where it was going to fail. And when a bad number came up, he knew how to troubleshoot it and yeah, solve the for it. Spots were. Yeah, when you're doing, you know, five, six hundred homes a year, you get a, a lot of experience very quickly. And they had a decent architect. And they had a decent architect. That, <laughs> so that we developed pretty good. Well, you know, the, the key what there was a decent owner that actually cared about what he built. And, you know, two things that he cared about. He cared that he delivered a good product. And the other thing that he always would say is that he will always build a house that one of his employees can afford to buy. That's so we had a range of houses that went from, I think, the smallest house was probably like 925 square footage and we went up to right around 4k on some of the more luxurious models i don't think i can afford to build a house that or i could buy a house that i would build if i wasn't the one building it for myself (laughs) right i couldn't afford to hire us yeah he was uh he was really good about that 
which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Steve sells this as a very noble thing, and I agree. But there are also other markets to compete in. It's just his choice. I mean, they just they didn't choose. That's not to say that Ben's company is ridiculous and shouldn't know. Now we we you uh, haven't said the name of the company, or did they oh, tell so, you not to say the name? Or you no, know no, the this? lawyers have said it's okay for me to associate myself with the company. Uh, so I work for a company called BPC Green Builders. Um, they've been doing nothing but high performance for twenty three years, which is a pretty um, rare so track I, I haven't tracked it down. Is it two brothers or something? It's two brothers. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I designed a house for one of the brothers years ago. It was a four square that in Connecticut. And I I forget exactly. It, it was a while ago, but they came to building science. And what's their, what's their, their last name begins with Trolley. a T or something? Yeah, yeah. Trolley. Chris yep. and Mike Trolley. Yep. And it's T-R-O-L-L-E. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we did a, I don't know if it ever got built or not, but it was a four square or nine square, very traditional house that we designed for them um, that was high performance when they were just getting into it. Yeah. So they were, yeah, definitely that early adopter phase. They had the first passive house in Connecticut is Mike's personal house. One of the owner's personal house, first passive house. Um, very much, you know, my father and like I was talking about before my grandfather, they were that pioneer phase. And then there was the early adopter phase. That's Chris and Mike who I work for. And now we have like broad market acceptance. It feels like it's that. That pioneer are. phase for those of you that aren't familiar with that part of our building history is like people building their own solar collectors. Yeah. And correct. Like real out there. I mean, even in the early 80s, my dad was doing double wall stuff that like the lumberyard was worried about selling him materials because he was buying too much materials for one house and they couldn't understand what he was doing. Building two walls. Yeah. Also, uh, the best lesson from the first double wall he ever built was uh, vertical studs, 16 inches on center, horizontal studs. 24 inches on center on the inside, which meant if you wanted to hang a picture, it had to be at six feet. (laughs) That was the only place that there was something to mount to. Yeah. 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 No blocking whatsoever. Hadn't even considered that they might hang things on the wall. So I think they ended up buying a bunch of smaller artwork when we moved into that house that they could just hang on a finished nail in the (laughs) gypsum board. So we have the the bedroom in our house. I live in a 1870s little salt box. Um, but somebody at some point before we bought the house, um, like crossford the bedroom walls, whatever, to flatten them or something like that. So it's the same thing. We only have like hanging locations at like, yeah, four feet and six feet. If you want to hang a TV, you have to take a layer of wall off. Yeah, oh yeah. Solid. My wife wanted some shelves hung up and she's like, why'd you put it there? I'm like, it's the only place we can put it. <laughs> or it's why is there a six by six sheet of plywood behind the yeah. TV screwed to the wall? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, uh, I had a client that wanted a TV mounted to a fireplace, but it was going to be mounted for like two years. And then they were going to put an addition on. And she said, you can use the two holes that are already there that hold the mantle up. And so we mounted a like three foot by three foot piece of three quarter plywood with those two holes and then mounted everything to it. And then they never put the addition on, but the TV's still there. It's still on the plywood. Yeah, yeah. It is. I painted the, the plywood close to a brick color, too. Like, I, I took... Did you, like, mask I the took, little no, lines I took the, in it? No, I took the fan deck, though, and, like, picked, like, four colors that were close to the, to the brick and then had the uh, paint store mix me rattle cans. 
Um, and I did like the, you know, I was gonna 80s see Dodge got, pickup you, camouflage version. I was thinking you were going to do like the 80s sponge painting, <laughs> the late 80s sponge painting. Yeah, uh, I definitely lived in a house or two that had sponge painting on it, but I never did <laughs> it. It was, it. It was my mother. It was a thing. We had wood paneling. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Your generation had wood paneling. My generation had painted wood paneling. Wood paneling, <laughs> yeah, with, exactly. wood paneling with acoustical ceilings a foot lower than uh-huh. the uh-huh. hard ceiling, which made it good for... Or the staple up acoustical, too. No, we didn't have staple up. We had the, the typical yeah, the grid hung. stuff. But the cool thing was, is I could hide stuff up there that my mom couldn't get to. Mm. Not that you would be hiding. Not that I would be hiding no, anything, no, but, but I'm just could, saying there was an yeah, opportunity yeah. there that... My father still to this day gets excited about certain paneling. You'll take him into a house and be like, oh, that's the eight inch walnut. That's yeah. the nice stuff. I'm like, oh. I, I was the last of six. So like when I left the house, my dad's like, just don't go to jail or something. All right. Just <laughs> yeah. come back whenever. I don't want to have to come pick you up. Yeah. That's, like, Try not to be a bother. Yeah. <laughs> don't burn anything <laughs> to the ground, please. Right. It's What does that say about you that they were like, okay, no more. This is enough. Uh, my mom was 41. Probably that that, about that, was it up. that was the perfect opportunity for and, you to and say, I'll, oh, I'll, drop, I'll, literally, I'll literally drop a bomb on you. She was 41 and I was 11 pounds when I was born and like 24 inches. So I was like a four month old baby. Yeah. I came out walking. I was, a, you I came, out with, a, came out with a suitcase. <laughs> Where are we moving? Off to work. Uh, there you go. So Ben, how long have you been at BPC? Uh, closing in on two years now yeah and uh we're in a transition where we're actually moving the company to a worker-owned cooperative and i will be a part owner of the company come january 1st so the people you you work for right now are hippies (laughs) no i wouldn't go so far as to say that by any stretch of the imagination i'm kidding the the (laughs) worker-owned cooperative partnered with early passive house adoption that spells greenie weenie. Yeah, we're greenie weenies. I'll give you that. Hippies okay, is a totally different connotation. Yeah. <laughs> and where where before that? Uh, so before that, I was working for Dan Colbert up in Portland, Maine. I did uh, almost four years working for him. Um, previous to that, I had owned my own business for about 10 years. Uh, decided when I had my selling s- small reptiles or. Yeah, yeah. On the black market. Um but when my son was born, I decided I didn't want to keep doing the 60, 70 hour weeks. Mm-hmm. And I decided I was going to take a job for somebody. Uh, and I figured if I'm going to go ahead and take a job for somebody, I might as well get a change of scenery at the same time. So I moved from Connecticut with my wife and son up to Maine, spent four years there. COVID hit, decided we missed being near our family back to Connecticut. And uh, yeah, I consider myself lucky that I've landed with the company that I'm with. because we're doing uh, interesting work. It's a good crew. Okay, so I would, uh, because I know the company that you work for, uh, I would say that they are um, probably a decent predictor as to where the market heads if people continue to adopt. I mean, obviously, something ridiculous like extremely low um, energy prices could slow things down or politics getting in the way of things like solar panels or Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, Where do you think the industry is five to 20 years from now. Do you think we get to a point where passive house is the standard? 20 years, maybe five years. Definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, and I don't know that. I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's so many, uh, what ifs that quantify where we'll end up there with, like you said, politics, energy costs, who knows, geopolitical stuff. Um, 
I'd like to think that we're headed in that direction. And I think we are uh, headed in that direction. But uh, we'll have to drag some people kicking and screaming along. But one of the things that I want to frame this in, and uh, people generally think about high performance. Hey, it's a framing joke. <laughs> Put a header over that one, would you? Uh, it, wow. People generally You're think crippling it, like, me. Oh, buddy. You're still on this? He's a jack, he's a jack of all trades. <laughs> he's a jack of all trades when it comes That's to That's very puns. silly. I'm going to trimmer you. this humor right out of here now. <laughs> but uh, it, people constantly think of uh, like high performance building is all about energy. Like we're trying to get low energy usage. And that's one of the things that comes along with it. And it was one of the early drivers of people understanding high performance building. But the, the way we frame uh, what we do now is we're giving people houses that are comfortable Houses that are healthy and houses that are durable. And those are things that all just come along with it. And the energy savings is a byproduct to me of that. You know, not many people come to us uh, saying, I want really low energy bills. They come to us and they say, I want a house. Yeah, someone that can afford your rates in a 5,000 square foot house probably can afford an extra $200 a year of natural gas or whatever whatever it's going to be. Or they can just afford the solar array to go to zero. Exactly. They don't don't care. They're coming to us because they want to, you know, either have an ecological impact, a health impact, (laughs) or a lot of times we're seeing clients that are uh, hitting retirement age and they want a house that they don't have the maintenance concerns with. And if you build high performance assemblies, you can. And they want to zero out the the political impact of what's happening around the world. Right. I have a lot of clients that do that. Like I want a zero energy house because I don't want to care what the price of a barrel of oil is. Well, that's it. Yeah. Especially as like you right. get people that are maybe moving on to fixed incomes in retirement or being more mindful of where yeah. their money's going. They, they can buy an electric car and, mm-hmm. and drive the car off of their Throw house. Throw the, the PV array on the roof and they know that our energy bills are taken care of. Yeah. I don't know if passive house will ever become the standard. Not because it isn't good. I think we're, we're creatures of... Uh, comfort and convenience we're also creatures of crisis like we rarely do the right thing when it's time to do the right thing if it was true then we'd all be 185 pounds and looking pretty svelte speak for Um, yourself yeah well don't you worry i told you (laughs) i I told you many a times get that gym membership money back it ain't working for you refund but uh, but I think what happens is is as we move towards the future, people realize that there's things that are become of more value and more important to people, and that new systems develop or existing systems develop better. Like maybe someday we'll have a solar panel that can get a thousand watts per panel instead of 365 and it might not be the same type of solar cell technology it'll be some other vacuum something technology whatever but the idea that okay i don't necessarily have to build a passive house i can just put eight of these panels up on my garage and i power the whole house because everything else the loads have come down and we figured out how to build a better refrigerator better air handlers we have better insulation quality in the house better windows because of some kind of technology so that we're driving the load down and we're finding a way to elevate the uh source of stuff so yeah uh you know people also get hung up with um these connotations that like we're doing high performance building for environmental reasons. And, you know, the, the whole discussion over climate change is politically loaded, but I, I 
try and couch it this way, that you can remove climate change completely out of the equation. And to me, doing what we're doing is just good stewardship. So we're reducing our consumption of materials and energy so that the next generations can have a shot to use them. You know? Or just that a house is, a th- you know, thousands of decisions. Let's make the best decisions we can mm-hmm. and drop the label. I, I'm, I'm making it my personal endeavor to just get rid of any and all labels um, before I'm no longer here and uh, make them disappear before I have to. And, uh, so how and do you just, know which underwear to buy at the store? Exactly. Now? Exactly. He tries the them on. cheetah, the cheetah, <laughs> the cheetah, <prints. laughs> yeah. cheetah print, whichever one's tickle is fancy. I mean, yeah. but, but I think that the idea of like high performance house, it's mm-hmm. okay. I get it. It's some marketing effort and, and it changes. We could talk about that and it does change because what kind yeah. of performance are you talking about? I mean, even the ones that have strict labels change. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just build a really good house. Not even that what we're going to call it. We're going to call it a really we're gonna, good we're gonna house. We're going to label I'm, it. I'm stepping it up. <laughs> For those of you that just got the book, I'm going with a new one and calling out the, the really, good, really good house. The really I'd good say house. A pretty good house is a really good house. Well, it's a pretty good house. Well, maybe they should have called it that then. Right. I'm going with really good house. <laughs> we did the marketing on that effort here. Let's be real. <laughs> so pretty, pretty. It is pretty a, good. But it that is whole a, concept is spot on. It's a it's a really good conversation that I end up having with clients like the informed clients will say like, oh, passive house or lead or net zero. And I'm like, um, you know, if we look at lead, there's the bicycle rack argument that like you get the same number of points for a bicycle rack as you do for air sealing and nobody's guaranteed to use the bicycle rack or net zero. I can make a Walmart building net zero if you give me enough space to put solar panels on it. And they should. They should. Mm-hmm. Right. Any of those big box stores like there should be a. Yeah, you can't build one of those in America unless 60 percent of your energy is site generated to, or some to, crazy rule. To you what want, you were saying, Steve, about like removing labels. One of the things that I always thought was a good idea is to get rid of the temperature on thermostats in a house because we all have these yeah. uh, like conditions and responses arrow. that, yeah, it should just Up have warmer and colder buttons because everybody thinks, oh, my house has to be 72 degrees and my house has to be 68 degrees. And we have this tie to this number. And if oh, it doesn't say that number, worms on me. if it doesn't say this number, then we're not comfortable. You know, because I get crazy clients that come and say, well, I need a master bedroom that's 16 by 16. I'm like, where'd you get that number? Well, my sister's is 14 by 15. And I think we need to be a little bigger than hers. And I want to be able to say, suck it, loser. It's like, <laughs> I mean, the, the whole. Yeah. But the whole she stole square your footage on that. I mean, a lot of the success of that room depends on where the windows are and where the door comes in to the room. Yeah. And that, that makes a big difference is you could make a better room smaller well, if you had to. You go but, one step further and we get clients. I mean, you and I get clients even that say, well, we need 2,200 square feet. Yeah. Well, where did you come up with that? 2,200 square feet of what? Well, the house. I can do it in 16. one room and you'll be able to fit all your furniture and there'll be tons of free floor space. Yeah. And maybe you should throw some stuff out. 10 yeah. foot ceilings. And- that's uh, that's a good conversation. So, Ben, uh, I suspect that you've listened to the podcast but before, but if you haven't uh, heard our discussion of this is a safe space, mm-hmm. none of our wives listen to this. Mm-hmm. My wife complained after we moved into our house about not having enough storage room. And I said, our house is double the size of the last house that we lived in, and you didn't complain about not having enough storage room there. 
I think we should have put more car garage. We should have put more crap in the dumpster before we left. He's got more his storage room in that garage than the total square footage of my house. Exactly. And there's absolutely no reason. And all it turns into is a place where we keep stuff that should have been thrown away. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we need less stuff. Where things go to die. Yeah. Yeah. We need less stuff, not more space. Yeah. I moved bicycles to get past uh, like pool floaties. To get past a treadmill to get to a piece of artwork that I've wanted to hang up since we moved in. And I was just like, man, some of that is used. Some of it is not. I mean, obviously, that treadmill, now that it's not inside the house, we don't use it for hanging clothes anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You're clearly not using it to exercise (laughs) on either. Oh, ouch. Uh, We uh, were just actually having a conversation inside of our, our company this week because we do. We find ourselves building these what I think are somewhat ridiculously large houses for, you know, two people to live in. Um, And we are going to actively try. And when we're in the conversation with the architects say, you know, one of the best things you guys can do to, you know, lower your energy bills or make a lower environmental impact is to make the house. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, that's a tough one because a lot of times uh, people don't want to do that because the architect's fees are often Percentage, percentage of however much yep. they build or even the, just time the builders profit is based off of the scope of the project so if the project gets bigger we make more money but uh you know i think it's you know depending and on you just don't want to be the one that has to tell somebody what they should and shouldn't have well or it risk pissing off clients that are moving judgment agree but. no totally but we're gonna we're going to at least um bring it up in the conversation yeah because no, we think it's something important so in closing, Ben, well, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Um, if you could say, like, here's one or two things that every builder should do to move in the direction that we're talking about. We we all start from someplace, but where would where would be your recommendation for somebody that's new to the industry? Where do you start? Uh, you, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh Continue learning, I think, is the biggest thing. And the way you do that is is you just pick something that interests you at the moment and you try and learn about it. You don't have to become an expert on it. You don't have to become proficient in it. But if you just take little things from your job and figure out more about them or how you can do them better, you'll continue to evolve. And so you don't go from track built below code to, to passive, passive house overnight. in one house. No. But there's no reason. You, but there's no reason why you couldn't do it in a few. Easily, that's an easy one. It's getting loud enough in our recordings, and then all the noise stops the second I start to say that. That's hilarious. Uh, okay, well, uh, like I said, thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Tell us about uh, a couple places that people might be able to find you and the content that you generate. Uh, Pub on 42nd Street. (laughs) Friday nights between Uh, 4 and 7. I'll wear your leopard print little uh, number there. Um, A burned out Cadillac near the railroad tracks. (laughs) (laughs) Just ask for Leroy. He'll know where I am. It's comfortable. Uh, I uh, am doing a number of educational things. I'm going to be at the Midwest Building Science Symposium coming up in Kansas City and then following in Chattanooga. I do stuff with JLC live every year. Um, the international builder show will be doing two large stages at IBS in uh, Vegas coming up this year that we're putting all the programming together for. Um, and I'm sure there's a number of other things, but and those a podcast. Are mind. 
a podcast. I'll, I'll be on the Unbuild It podcast. Uh-huh. I'm here. Yeah. I uh, sometimes manage to post stuff on Instagram. Uh, I do quite a bit of stuff with Fine Home Building and Green Building Advisor. So we've got video series out with both of them on projects we're doing. So in other words, use the internet to find Ben when he's going to be in person and uh, when he puts content out. Okay. We could have we mm-hmm. said that. Google's there. Google. Google. Just Google. Uh-huh. Google. Steve, closing thought? I have none. Okay. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. Don't forget to like and subscribe. If you have questions for Ben, smash too, that like button. Too bad he can't smash read. Smash that like button. <laughs> have a good day. <laughs>